0: Welcome to Marvel
1: Us Disney. Welcome to Marvel Us Disney, the podcast that discusses all of the recent doings of one of the more interesting divisions of the Walt Disney Company, and that's Marvel Entertainment. As for who the Us is, I'm Jim Hill, and it's time to bring in an audio expert, one Aaron Adams. Hello once again, my friend. And I bring up audio because the first thing we're discussing today is actually a really interesting audio-based project. It's out of Marvel's new media arm. Why don't you describe it? Because again, you're the audio guy.
0: Well, it's something that I'm very excited about because it's something I always, while I was working within the confines of a radio station, said we really need to do something different. And when you're a radio station, it's play the hits. That's the only job, play the hits, shut up, get out of the way. I like the idea of the old school serials, the Superman radio drama from back in the day and that kind of thing. What they're doing is taking that concept and putting the 2018 audio quality level on that and really dressing it up in a very pretty dress And taking it to the ball. So we've got this project. It was called Wolverine, the long night, and it's an audio podcast, but it's much more than a podcast because, you know, this is a podcast, a couple of guys talking about stuff. What they're doing is they're doing a radio drama with voice actors. Actually, they've got Richard Armitage is playing the voice of Logan or Wolverine, and he was the lead dwarf in the Hobbit movies. Mm -hmm they've done a lot with sound design and really trying to put you in a space. And so if you can imagine and just close your eyes and you're getting a movie without the visuals, it's going to really try and drop you into the middle of a Wolverine story where you can just sit back, close your eyes and kind of get lost and let your imagination make the picture for you. And that's one thing as an audio producer that we've always enjoyed. We call theater of the mind Mm -hmm. of I can give you a couple of sound effects and make a very simple story with those sounds and save the dialogue for a better purpose.
1: This is long form. This isn't a one shot. I mean, this is going to be 10 episodes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They're not just going to put out one and see how it goes. They put in the time and effort to do a very long form full story. And right now all we've been able to listen to is the trailer. What they've done with it so far is very, very great sound quality. I can't stress this enough. There's a lot of people that make things and they've just got... Oh, Jim, back in the day, I'm sure you might remember like a Dukes of Hazard episode or something where the General Lee is skidding Err! on dirt. And that doesn't happen in real life. <laughs> it makes the visual look a lot cooler with that screeching sound but when they're on dirt that's not the sound that that makes in nature and so there are times where you disconnect from things for the wrong reasons or whatever but they just do a fantastic job with the sound design in this trailer so far that i'm very excited to to listen to the full 10 hours and get lost in a wolverine story i'm very excited
1: and if you want to check this out for yourselves folks the address is www.wolverinepodcast one word Dot com and fun little side note for our Disney fans out there: Scott it, the voice of Baymax, is actually part of the cast of this thing. Yeah, going to be interesting to see what bend he puts on his character. Speaking of trailers, in addition to the audio trailer, you've been there. there's a flood of yeah, a flood of trailers coming out recently. Well, why don't we walk through the various Marvel trailers that have hit recently?
0: Okay, we'll start off with the non-cinematic universe, because they're still interesting and they're still Marvel. Deadpool 2 recently had a trailer where they introduced cable, and I thought that Deadpool did a fantastic job with its advertising campaign for the first movie, because it was almost like just bonus treats. You're not going to see this in the movie, but it did give you the tone of what the movie will be, and so it's great advertising in the sense of they're not giving away the money shots in all the advertising and throwing in so many plot points a lot of advertising right now if you go in and you see a trailer it's basically the beginning middle and almost the end of the movie but with their type of advertising they set the tone of the character and set an expectation of it's going to be funny it's going to be violent but we're really not going to show you all that much of the actual movie And so they do that again with their new trailer, introducing you to Cable, and then all of a sudden it's Deadpool playing with minifigs of the characters.
1: I would love to find out if this was done prior to the start of the Disney Fox acquisition, but when Deadpool shows his action figure doing battle with Cable, he's dressed as Sheriff Woody from Toy Story. And it's just sort of like, I don't think that would have sailed through Fox Legal if they hadn't made this deal.
0: In the original movie, if you remember at the end, the climax of the Deadpool's first movie takes place on top of a helicarrier, Mm -hmm. and they didn't have the rights to use a helicarrier. By the time the movie comes out, what's Marvel going to do? It's like, hey, you can't use that. Oh, they they already did. It's better to ask for forgiveness than permission, because
1: they go, oops, sorry. (laughs) Now it's going to be interesting to see what a Deadpool is, like, that has money.
0: I don't know if they're going to give them all that much more money. I mean, yeah, they're going to increase the budget, but they're not going to go from, like, a $60 million budget or whatever it was to $300 million, like, How much are they spending on Infinity Wars? Do you know?
1: Now, remember, with Infinity Wars, they shot two movies back to
0: back. So it's all one lump sum to them. They're not going to divide sand in the sandbox?
1: Pretty much. In fact, what was kind of interesting is Chris Hemsworth is out. Thor is getting ready to transfer from its theatrical release to digital download, you know, and that sort of thing. So he's continuing to do press. And he was just talking about, we just finished shooting, a year-long shoot says, I'm going to be intrigued because we just shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot. And And then it's like, okay, how does this cut together? What stays Mm -hmm. in the movie? What doesn't? So I think at the end of the day, there's going to be a price tag that even gives Bob Iger pause. But the hope is given that this is the film that not only caps off the Marvel 10 year anniversary. and, And by the way, I guess at some point we should talk about that as well. With the photo shoot. The class photo, yes. Sort of kicked that off as the lead-up, but yeah. Well, speaking of which, I guess, should we transition from Deadpool to talking about the Infinity Wars trailer? Sure, we'll cover Infinity War briefly. Mm -hmm. It looks gorgeous. It's got
0: every Marvel hero that's ever been in the cinematic universe. It's going to finally have Thanos come in and stomp some heads in a violent, horrific, brutal way. I'm expecting that many of our old Avengers are going to be lost in the battle and that my assumption is the second movie will be the new Avengers. And I think it's just going to be brilliant and glorious and emotional to see the close of some people's journey as well as the beginning of new journeys for like Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. And I'm excited for where we're going next. And I think this movie will probably make all of the monies in all of the world (laughs) it will just be the biggest thing to ever happen in the cinematic world not just marvel but just hollywood in general globally it's going to make all the monies
1: well it's so funny you say that because this is coming out on in may and we're we're recording this in mid-february just today, I was reading a story online where people are examining this trailer like the Zapruder film. Sure. They're doing close ups of the Infinity Gauntlet to determine which what, stones are in it. Do you get in what order Thanos has, has collected them. And I don't know, two minutes of film has been gone over quite as closely as this trailer has. But I guess, again, we're all waiting for it.
0: I really don't want to watch too many trailers for Infinity War because. I can't get any more hyped for it. The only place I have left to go is down, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like, I I just want to see it. I will enjoy it. And I can't wait for the next one. But I don't need to see any big, huge moments from the film prematurely. I'm ready for it. I'm as primed as I can be. Got it.
1: Okay, so what next in our trail of trailers? Let's take a step from the
0: highest point in Mm -hmm. Marvel to the very lowest point that I think we're gonna see in a while and it greatly pains me to say the Venom trailer left me wanting would be the biggest understatement I could make. It was basically Tom Hardy walking around San Francisco. Mm -hmm. There was one shot of a symbiote in a canister And that was it, and then yeah, he does a little tremor shake shake at the end where it looks like he's being taken over by the symbiote and I just couldn't have cared less and I am the biggest Spider-Man fan, therefore Venom is well in my wheelhouse of being one of my favorite characters and it just feels so disconnected, it feels like a cash grab on Sony's behalf. They can't let him into the Spider-Man universe. Therefore, he's got to get the symbiotic suit in a different way. Is it going to have a spider logo on it? And if so, why? And if not, why, (laughs) you know, I mean, no, no matter what they do, it's just not going to satisfy everybody. And the hard school core fans of the olden days are going to start off with a grudge against it right off the bat because they have no Spider-Man connection to it. And so they really have to build it from the ground up. And I tell you, they better have one hell of a fantastic story because if it's weak in any way, people are going to jump all over it. So I hope for the best, but I'm planning for the worst. And from what they showed in the trailer, there is absolutely nothing to get me excited for it. And I like Tom Hardy as an actor. He's done incredible work. It's not like I don't have faith in his ability. It's just what they've shown me is Tom Hardy walking in San Francisco, and that's not compelling.
1: I get that. I get that. The one caveat here I guess we should mention is that. This is the teaser trailer. This isn't the really for real trailer trailer, which we'll see this summer for this. This is an October, November release, isn't it? I want to say it's out right before Halloween.
0: True, but you could have taken a Deadpool route where you didn't even show anything from Mm -hmm. the movie instead of something that is not compelling.
1: Mm, If you want to
0: generate buzz, but you don't want to generate bad buzz. The Mm -hmm. only reason Venom made the news is because Mm -hmm. the trailer was garbage. Hmm. that's it as a creative person I always hope for the best but when I look at something critically I say there's mistakes written all over this and you've done nothing to generate goodwill towards your property
1: Got nothing on. at all though what I've been told is that they just saw given that Black Panther is so eagerly anticipated they just wanted to have a trailer in front of it and and the argument is there affects people it's like we don't have anything done you can't to a trailer for Venom without some heavy-duty effect sequences. People have certain expectations about this character. You you can have a completely black screen
0: with about 30 seconds of very wonderful voiceover dialogue, and then white eyes show up out of the black screen to create the Venom face. And then, boom, back to black and with a big, heavy Mm -hmm. slam sound effect, and you're out. You know, it doesn't have to actually be footage from the movie to create anticipation, do something that's not in the movie, create something special. That's only to promote the movie, but do it well and do it creatively and you don't have to use film for that.
1: Okay. Wish somebody at the studio had thought of that. Anyway, moving to our, hopefully, a less disappointing film or less disappointing trailer.
0: The expectations are very high for Black Panther. My wife doesn't want to see anything else from the movie because she's at her peak of excitement for Black Panther coming out. Mm-hmm. And so we've got a no Black Panther ads in the house rule until we actually get to see it because we're just too excited for it. We've been hearing very positive things all about it. Mm -hmm. The one thing I saw in the trailer is like the car materializing out of nowhere. I don't know how that works, how you can sit into something that's kind of like a hologram and then become solid. And it's just purely out of a scientific questioning. How does that happen? I want there to be at least 30 seconds where they go, oh, and by the way, we've got this device from Stark Industries that generates whatever and turns gas into solid. I don't care what the explanation is, but I want there to be an explanation for that because I just saw that and I was like, "What? what is that about?
1: Okay. Just yesterday, I got my copy of The Art of Black Panther, the very next book in that amazing series of art of books for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I will tell you from having paged through that, there's actually a pretty cool explanation that Okay. when I was reading that, I was like, oh, that's a really cool idea. As long as they've got some explanation somewhere, that's cool. They do, and it actually keys off of the science. All right, I'm not going to say anything. No, I understand
0: Um, they have got very advanced technology well beyond what we have outside of Wakanda. I'm looking forward to some of those discoveries
1: of, ooh, that's brilliant. I wish we had that. Trying to figure out how to say this without saying anything. We've seen... Captain America's shield and we know it's made of I want to say this right vibranium is that the vibranium vibranium correct but the thing is that when you mine vibranium there are various forms that it assumes and Hmm. And this kind of keys off of that, and that's all I'm going to say. Okay, cool. Now, speaking of which, just to, to sort of jump into the Black Panther thing, as you mentioned, excitement continues to build, and not just in the Aaron Adams household. We've had the premiere at the LCAP uh, that was held on February 15th. Given the reviews that this Ryan Coogler film has received so far, it, it, some people are calling it the best Marvel Cinematic Universe movie released to date which you know wow. like, yeah people are getting kind of crazy a uh, Fandango reported that in the first 24 hours that advanced tickets for Black Panther were available for purchase so many were sold they blew past the previous record holder which oddly enough was Captain America Civil War from May of 2016 mm-hmm. interesting thing though I'm almost sad to share this story but in this party-like atmosphere at every party there's a pooper and in, in this case There was this group on Facebook called Down With Disney's Treatment of Franchises and Its Fanboys. I I don't know if you've heard about this. No. Okay. Well, basically, these are the idiots who took credit earlier this year for tanking Star Wars The Last Jedi's freshness rating over Rotten Tomatoes. They actually went on the site and deliberately filed bad reviews of the film. Which is why if you go there today, that Lucasfilm production has a, an audience rating of in the mid 40s, which is less than half than the, the 92% rating that the episode six got from the critics. Mm-hmm. Anyway, these bozos just, they announced they were gonna do the exact same thing to Black Panther. In fact, they set up a Facebook event page ahead of time with a title that said, let's give Black Panther a rotten audience score over at Rotten Tomatoes. And Facebook, to its credit, shut this group down on February 2nd and but you know what was kind of interesting at least to me is that a number of the members of this Facebook group were supposedly disgruntled DC fans (laughs) supposedly they were upset that they felt the critics were unnecessarily harsh to Justice League when, when that Zack Snyder movie came out on November 17th which is why as payback they decided to deliberately tank Last Jedi and Black Panther's audience rating, with with the idea being if there were a big enough gap between the Rotten Tomatoes critic rating and the audience rating, that would then show how out-of-touch critics are today with superhero franchise films. And Justice League, February 13th, begins walking out in the world, beginning its second life as a, a digital download, and then uh, March 13th will be the Blu-ray, the 4K Ultra like HD, And meanwhile, Thor Ragnarok, the digital download of that is February 20th, but the physical copies then come out of the world on March 6th. To slide back to Justice League for a little bit, if you look at its box office, I mean, it did 228 million domestic, 428 overseas, worldwide box office is 656 million because of the reshoots. This movie costs $250 to $300 million to make. So friends I've talked with in the industry, the only way that movie broke even was that it, it finally made it over $600 million. And when you consider that Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice same thing because of reshoots because of they began testing and it had way too dark a tone and so they Mm -hmm. they had to go back and reshoot but that ended up costing 250 to 300 million dollars but that film managed to sell 330 million tickets stateside and 553 million overseas with a box office of 873 and so That one was actually a bit more profitable for the studio, but the overall trend line, with Dawn of Justice selling 330 tickets and Justice League only selling 228, the numbers are going in the wrong direction.
0: What if you factored Wonder Woman into that equation? Because then all of a sudden you've got a peak in the middle of two troughs.
1: Yes, Suicide Squad and Wonder Woman do change the dynamics, but given the talk that's coming out of Warner's right now about change of direction, and in fact, there's a lot of pressure right now on Aquaman. Whereas, if you look at Thor, I mean, Thor the trend lines. For example, it's overseas business. First film in 2011 makes 268 million. Second film comes 31 months later in November 2013. That sells 438 million. It's a 170 million dollar jump in ticket sales. And at the same time though, you have to acknowledge that in between Thor: Dark World and the original Thor. There was the Avengers, and there Mm -hmm. was Iron Man 3, and both of them did double the business overseas that Thor Dark World did. And what's kind of funny is if you talk with people at Marvel, that they have this interesting defense. Well, you know, that was the year we put out two Marvel movies, and, you know, it's hard to market two Marvel movies right on top of one another, and it's just sort of like... They're doing it right now. They're doing four this year. Panther on February 16th, Avengers Infinity Wars May 4th, Ant-Man and Wasp July 6th. Given sort of the the semi-permeable membrane now between Sony and Marvel Studios, I have to say I consider Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, the animated thing they're doing. I would consider that to be... Kind of the same vein as Spider-Man Homecoming to be part of the cinematic universe now.
0: If they physically tie it to the cinematic universe, then mm-hmm. fine. But right now it's animated. And I know that they've had in the trailer, there is some form of Peter Parker mentoring mm-hmm. Miles So it could be an older version of Peter, I think, at that point. So I I don't know if I could find a way to logically connect it outside of saying it's in one of the alternate universes. There's many, many Earths in, in the Marvel Universe. So if it's in an alternate dimension of our reality, then sure, it's part of the MCU. Okay. But right now, I just can't find a legitimate connection to it outside of Sony made a different type
1: of Spider-Man movie. Okay, we'll take that one off the table. But either that's so, three, three of them in, in one year's time. And and you have to wonder the worry when you have that much product. Are you going to cannibalize your audience? Because it's like we aren't all made of infinite money. And we didn't talk about the Ant-Man and Wasp trailer and how much fun that Oh, yeah, that that's looks. right i completely forgot about it and you're right it was brilliant
0: and unexpected and all the fun of the first one and it it looks like they've taken the torch and moved it a few steps forward and and it looks great
1: i can't wait to see that one and same thing i love what i saw in fact i want a building that i can take to the airport right but at the same time i just worry that because that's the third in line Is that going to necessarily do the same business? Or on the other hand, are people just going to be so jazzed after having seen Infinity Wars? It's like, you know, more Marvel. Absolutely. Well, here's the one dynamic that could work
0: in favor towards helping boost Ant-Man is you're right. It's right after Infinity War 1. Mm -hmm. And then you have Ant-Man show up and everyone's looking for some scraps of what's to come next. And will this specific adventure be directly after the events of Infinity War? And will they leave any trail of breadcrumbs for the future of what we're going to see from the wrap up of whatever Infinity War 2 ends up being called? Hmm. Because, you know, they've always been so good at sowing little seeds along the way that blossom later on. They can either embrace that or they can be completely hush hush and go, no, no, no. We can't leave any clues for what's to come because it's so top secret. Or whatever.
1: Well, I guess we'll know come July. But as of right now, again, we're recording this in February. And like I said, Thor Ragnarok has done really well and is getting ready to launch on uh, digital and and Blu ray and such. But uh, for a lot of folks, if you asked why this one did better than Dark World, both domestically and internationally, It's all about the Hulk. It's all about the big green guy was in this and riffing on planet Hulk. As you recall from our last installment of Marvelous Disney, we had just finished talking about how the big green guy had transitioned from comic book hero to one of the stars of Marvel's first attempt at an animated series, which, again, just was basically Illustrated Radio. And then we got the weekly television series with Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno, which, again, came to a close with Death of the Incredible Hulk, which was the third of those series of TV movies that Universal produced for NBC after the CBS show was canceled. And that airs in February of 1990, and now the franchise goes fallow for a while. And so how long does it go fallow? just over two years in December of 1992, Marvel Studios enters into discussions with Universal Pictures with the idea that they're going to try to expand the rights that the studio already holds for a whole TV series and then turn those into rights to make a Hulk commotion picture. And, And again, just to be clear, not another TV movie, but a really for real go to the theater, buy a ticket, and then get yourself an overpriced popcorn and buy a Coke for $35. And supposedly Stan Lee went to Universal in 94 to hear the first pitch for this project, which... God help us, Aaron. The first story, the first thing that got pitched was that the Hulk was going to fight terrorists. Right. Is is that even a fight? So how then does the Hulk movie move from being a terrible concept to an actual greenlit motion picture? Oddly enough, it, it had to do with the sale of MCA. This is Universal's parent company back in the day to Matsushita, This was in November of 1990, and this Japanese industrial company bought Universal for $6.6 billion. Unfortunately, they learned the hard way that Tinseltown is a very tough place to do business, which is why less than five years after owning Universal, they decided to sell the place off to Seagram's. They were so eager to part with MCA at that point, they actually took a $900 million loss on the deal. And as 1995 is giving way to 96, Universal Pictures is eager to show their new owners, the guys at Seagram's, that this movie studio can be a profit center. And the reason they're kind of feeling under the weather or embarrassed at this point is July of 1995 is when Universal Pictures released Waterworld. Oh. Yeah, that Kevin Costner movie to this day is infamous for... Problem Plague doesn't even begin to describe this $175 million movie. I mean, at least a couple of times, the set actually sank. So lots of pressure from Seagram's to make movies that make money. And so in 1996, they did a remake of, of Jerry Lewis's The Nutty Professor. And. This was an Eddie Murphy movie that cost $54 million to make and ends up doing fairly well. Combination of domestic and overseas box office, it's $273 million. And so it's like, they got a franchise out of it. As far as Edgar Brockman, the head of Seagram's, that was a good start. But he wanted bigger returns on his company's $5.7 billion investment. So they put their Jurassic Park sequel, The Lost World, into production. Unfortunately, Brofman gets a really rude awakening during the production of this movie about the way things work in Hollywood, and it's like, all right, so it's three weeks prior to the start of shooting, and they've already cleared a giant chunk of the Universal backlot to build this village on Site B, the supposedly decrepit old labs where the dinosaurs are actually created. And... And there was supposed to be this elaborate chase and this huge sequence was going to be shot on this thing. So there's tens of billions of dollars that have been spent on the sets of this thing. And mm-hmm. Spielberg goes, you know, no, I, we need to do something different. How about this? Why don't we shoot the climax of the movie where the a T-Rex gets loose in modern-day San Diego and runs through the streets at night? He's Steven Spielberg, you can't say no to him. Right. Now, again, it's shooting at night, all sorts of CG that have to be shot against live action backgrounds, and it really bumps up the budget And Jurassic World ends up costing $73 million. What frustrated Brofman is that at the end of the day, Jurassic Park Lost World comes out uh, summer of 97, and it only makes two thirds of what the original Jurassic Park made. This is not why we got into filmmaking, not to have people, you know, three weeks out suddenly make a change and leave tens of billion dollars in the ground. And Broffman wanted far better returns on investment. And he points Universal executives, look, in 1994, New Line made The Mask based on the Dark Horse comic series. And that film, with as much CG as it had in it. Only cost $23 million to make. Wow. And it ends up making $350 million worldwide. The very next year, 1995, Batman Forever. Not the favorites of the Batmans that were made, sure. Nope, Nope. A much higher budget than The Mask. It was a $100 million budget, but it still managed to make its worldwide box office over $336 million. This is why, as Spielberg is changing his plans for the the end of of Lost World in 1996. Brockman reaches out to Gayle Ann Hurd, which if you're a fan of the Terminator movies or you know a lot of what James Cameron did, she's the woman who, who produced those films for him. And her husband is Jonathan Heinlein, the screenwriter of Jumanji. And Brockman asked them to be the producers of Universal's Hulk movie. Wanting this to really be a showcase he reaches out to ILM and asks them to do the, the CG for the movie. And if we jump back to December of 1995, that's when the first Jumanji came out. This is an amazing hit film. In this case, the director, Joe Johnston, if you know you're Disney, this is the guy who directed Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and The Rocketeer, and this was the project where it all came together. So it's like, if we're going to pick a guy to direct a Hulk movie, this should be the guy. Unfortunately, they started working on the scripts for this thing. Mm -hmm. Remember, they're starting with the Hulk battling terrorists. At one point, a script comes across Johnston's desk and it's like, the Hulk is out in the middle of the ocean fighting a school of sharks and it's like, okay, I'm out. And he actually bails on the film, June of 1997, so he can then Mm -hmm. go off and shoot. October Sky. But Universal is left in the lurch. It's sort of like, well, who are we going to get to direct this thing? And Jonathan raises his hand. It's like, well, I'm the guy who wrote Jumanji. I helped deliver that hit as much as Joe did. And can I have a shot at this? And Universal kind of looks askance at him, but his wife is the producer. Mm -hmm. And the whole notion is, well, Gail, will you vouch for Jonathan? And... Make sure that he works within the budget because this is the other problem is that ILM is out doing these amazing tests. And everybody agrees the tests are amazing, but it's just sort of like, how much is this going to cost to do? But it's just sort of like, all right, for the time being, Jonathan will be our director. And with the notion of you're the screenwriter, you figure out how to make this movie for less than $100 million and deliver a script that we can shoot for less than a hundred million dollars because that's the figures that were coming in based on the test that ILM had done. It's like, look, we can give you a wonderful Hulk, an amazing Hulk, but for the amount of screen time that this will need to be CG, this is where we are. So Heinleck throws himself into working on the script with the idea of trying to get the cost down. By August of 1997, he delivers a script in this version of the story the very same gamma rays that turned Bruce Banner into the Hulk have somehow made insects out in the desert, transformed them into insect men. And these then become the villains of the piece. And these become the characters that the Hulk will do battle with. And that's replacing the terrorists, right? Not replacing in the terrorists. To, okay, good. Re- replacing the sharks, which we, again, oh, remember, this is Universal. And Universal, you know, again, when the script came in with the sharks, it's like, hey, remember, we're the studio that made Jaws and we know how much it costs to put things in the water. It's like, no. Right. Set this thing in the desert. Anyway, uh, how close did this get to being made? Filming was actually set to start in December of 97. They found locations in Arizona, and the notion was they're gonna shoot for three and four months. This was gonna be Universal's summer release for 1999. Did they get far enough along to cast anyone? Well, at this point, they're talking about Billy Crudup, but here's the problem universal as the price rises is getting nervous and they really don't know what they want to do with the hulk movie they're talking about it should it be a science fiction adventure should it be a comedy and i know that's weird to hear that but you have to understand at one point the studio is looking for a more bankable name than billy crutup so right They're talking about Jim Carrey. They're talking about Adam Sandler. Whoa. And finally, in the end, Jonathan Heinlein had it. And it's just sort of like, all right, if this is the way you want going to go, I just have to step away. They continue to flail. I mean, yet anybody who knows the Hulk mythology, I mean, they're throwing anything against the wall here. There's, there's a draft of this thing where instead of the Ant-Man out in the desert, the Hulk is now doing battle with the leader and Zax and the absorbing Man. I mean, three of them is the villains of the piece. Mm. And finally, it just comes down to the fact that it's like, if we're going to do this and we're going to make a Hulk movie and we're going to spend $100 million. Let's get a good director, a really good director. Let's get a serious director. And this is when An Lee enters the project and gets a little complicated at this point. Ang Lee, Ghost ILM. And he's having his first meeting with them and it's like, okay, we have all of our Hulk tests that we did for the previous version of this and we're anxious to show it to him. And and he walks in with one of those tiny little serenity, the rake and the sand and the pebbles that you put on <laughs> right, somebody's yep. desk. And it's sort of like, this is how I envision the Hulk film. And it's like, as a little serenity thing? And it's like, yeah. And what if the, the Hulk was... Like a jellyfish, uh, so that's where we'll leave it with with a serenity thing and a jellyfish <laughs> now, speaking of things that make squishy noises, one of my favorite things about the Marvelous Disney podcast is that like Aaron gets to show off his expertise when it comes to creating these amazing sounding pieces of audio that you deconstruct them in front of our audience and let them understand. All the stuff they've been listening to for years—the the care and the thought that went, goes into creating them—and since we're talking about the Hulk today, you decided to go with the, the big green guy and or the noise he makes when he moves around. Is that correct? Or
0: yeah, we've we've thrown together some hulking footsteps. And when I would teach audio production to many of the staff at the radio station, one of the things that you have to teach is creative thinking. It's not really so much about just looking up giant footsteps, because that sound effect usually doesn't exist in your sound library, so you have to figure out, how do I make the sound of giant footsteps? So what we've done is we've taken a couple of barefoot sounds walking, and they've got this kind of sandy hiss at the end of them, and that's going to kind of be the, the gravelly noise of grit underneath his feet, so to speak. If you really, really want to do it, and I was tempted to do it, you can take a giant steak and slap it on the ground to get that sound. But I couldn't sacrifice a steak. I'd rather eat it. So (laughs) I went barefoot stomping around the house. And then after you have some bare feet, you need something to indicate size. And there's two things that indicate size. One of them is speed or actually slowness of steps because Hulk has a bigger stride. And if you think of gigantic creatures in the movies, they move very, very slowly to indicate their massive size. So by placing the footsteps further apart, you get to sound like he's bigger in size just from the pacing of it. And then also it gives the sound effect of our our next sound room to breathe, so to speak. And what that is, is the rumble of an earthquake. And this is a hard sound effect to come by. I actually had to dig this out of the library because you can't summon an earthquake on demand for a recording session so all it is is a very very low rumble and i'll tell you right now if you're listening on a computer or like a phone you probably won't be able to hear this because the frequency is so low so you'd either need a booming sound system or headphones of decent quality to be able to hear this sound because it's so low but this is just a rumble And all we're going to do now is we just take a footstep and we take a little slice of the rumble and we fade it out. And so you get the impact of the foot and then a little rumble that fades away in the distance. And that's that earth tremor of every time the Hulk takes a step, the earth shakes a little bit. And that really gives weight and, and size to the sound. And then for the footsteps i did do a couple of things to tame them so to speak and that's rolling off the high-end eq to make it uh not so bright and so small sounding and so now it's a little bit more dull and flat and it feels wider i don't want any shiny sound i want it to be kind of a dull thudding sound so it kind of removes the slap of the foot hitting the floor and then uh, for the earthquake, just turn it up and then fade it out. And for every step you just put in a little sliver of earthquake and fade it out. And so here's the Hulk walking. And now if you speed it up, here's the Hulk running. you really don't have to do a lot to make this type of sound effect it's more about creative thinking of how do i achieve size and you need to think well maybe he creates an earthquake when he walks he's that big and powerful and so you got to find that low rumble and there's ways you can create that digitally with you know like a synthesizer or something like that you just dial in a really low frequency and a very high oscillation pattern where and you kind of get that low rumble and then you just fade it out fade it out faded out so you get this <laughs> it's a lot of fun it's very very simple to do when you're teaching it's really not about the mechanics all the time of how did you do that it's more about how did you think to do that is the best question
1: see this is why i love talking to audio guys cuz only you guys talk about shiny sound yeah <laughs> we do <laughs>
0: There's it's a very almost an intangible language because you have to describe something big word I use a lot is air air happens at 10,000 kilohertz and above and it's all the breath in your voice and if you don't have any air you don't have any life in your voiceover and so it's one of those things where you end up dialing up a certain frequency. And people go, why are you doing that? And you say, well, I'm adding air to the voice. And that means absolutely nothing to them that makes any sense at all. But to a producer, you go, well, of course, obviously, <laughs> you know, <Wow. laughs> we use a very esoteric language and it's kind of hard to get into that groove. They have to teach you what to listen for. Mm-hmm. And then you have to be able to identify it with your own ears and then go, oh, I get it. There are so many things in this world that I didn't know existed until I got into the audio world and then I hear them and I'm now forever ruined from enjoying like the Wilhelm scream (laughs) I can't see anything in this world and if I hear the Wilhelm scream I have to raise
1: my hand and go, Wilhelm (laughs) you know i have to admit it momentarily pulls me out of movies or tv shows when i hear it because again Mm -hmm. once once you know what you're listening to and once you understand the history of it it's just but at the same time when you think about the people who work in your field there really is sort of a a tradition tradition of yes you know that well somebody's falling so it's time for the wilhelm scream in some i can
0: honestly tell you that if i were to ever get a job working in a big huge production picture or a very large TV show, Mm -hmm. I would find a way to manipulate a Wilhelm so it's not very recognizable and then place it somewhere in the background. It's almost like Kilroy was here. Mm -hmm. in spray paint it's your little thumb mark of go i did a professional thing and i got to throw in a wilhelm and my career is done
1: i am satisfied kind of a weird offshoot here i'm friendly with bill farmer the the gentleman who does goofy's voice and and pluto's voice for the disney animation these days and pinto kolvik the gentleman who initially did goofy I forget which short it is specifically, but it's the animation equivalent of the Wilhelm scream. Mm -hmm. The thing is that Bill is enough of a perfectionist that when he's recording for Disney, for example, the new Mickey Mouse shorts, and they do a point where... Goofy falls. It's like, he doesn't want them to go to the library. He wants to do the Goofy scream himself, but he yeah. talks about how he saves it for the end of the session. In fact, he says, I save two things for the end of the session: When Goofy is falling, when I have to scream and when Pluto is barking, cause I will blow out my voice doing mm-hmm. all of the Pluto barking. So that's literally the last thing they do in those sessions. So honestly, my ear is tuned for those two noises. The Wilhelm and the Goofy, Woohoo! hoo -hoo!" Sorry, Bill, I did it very poorly. (laughs) It's strange, in both (laughs) cases, when I'm listening to something, it's like, oh, it's Bill. One of
0: the things I enjoy is when I'm just listening to sound, it's being able to get into the other creative person's head, almost like a painter looks at a painting and they recognize a brush stroke as a style and a technique And I really enjoy being able to see someone's style and technique, and then to wrap back to the beginning, that Wolverine podcast that they've got, it's so much more than a podcast. It is an audio adventure, and some very, very talented people put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to make that as crisp and beautiful sounding as it does. You can go to a library of old sound effects that were done in the 60s and 70s, and there's so much noise in those recordings that today we find them unusable. I wouldn't be surprised if they had a team go out and record specific sounds out in the wilds to capture them fresh and specific for the storytelling that they're going to do. So I'm very, very excited to see 10 full hours of audio adventure drama through Wolverine coming up
1: and speaking of which that hopefully on our next marvelous disney podcast we will have you deconstruct something that's been done for black panther
0: i got to see the movie and see what what all the sounds are there before i can figure out
1: what we're going to do though (laughs) there we go okay so we'll get a new show out fairly soon and and again aaron and i are both going to see black panther and talk about that and then from there we'll push on with our talk about the hulk movie series That's it for this week on The Marvelous Disney Show. This is Jim Hill, and I'm signing off now for Aaron Adams. Have a good night, folks.